Uh, if you have a Bible, uh, let's go ahead and turn to uh, James chapter 5. We're going to finish out the book of James today. Um, I can't remember how long ago it was that we started this, kind of towards the tail end of the summer, uh, I think. And uh, so we've been kind of several months into the book of James. We've had a few things in between, but um, we're finishing it out today. Pastor David and I were talking last week about uh, just for us personally how James uh, has kind of met us where we're at, both personally in our own lives, even as the guys that stand up here week to week and preach it, uh, that, that God has, has met us in this. And uh, James gets kind of ripped sometimes as, as not being a book that really has a, a lot of gospel clarity to it. Uh, and I hope that during these last several months that we've been in the book of James that, that we've brought the gospel clarity that is in the book of James uh, to you guys. And it's just been such a blessing. And so we're going to finish it out today. Uh, James chapter 5, uh, verses 19 and 20. So the last two verses. So to kind of catch us up here a little bit to give some context uh, to these verses, James starts out his book by talking to us about how to handle trials according to our faith. Uh, maybe some of you remember that. In chapter 2, he talks about how we treat people according to our faith. Uh, in chapter 3, James shows us about how our tongues are controlled by our faith, the things that we say uh, are controlled according to our faith. In chapter 4, uh, James shows us how to handle conflict according to our faith. Uh, and up to this point in, in chapter 5, he has showed us how to anticipate the return of Christ according to our faith and how that kind of plays out in the way that we live our lives. And, and so James is a book that really shows us the outworking of our faith. Um, faith is more than doing, right? But there is a component of our faith that, that is living uh, in a Christ-honoring, uh, God-exalting sort of a way. And James has shown us what that life looks like. And as he wraps it up uh, with these last two verses in uh, verse 19 of chapter 5, he says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And I kind of wonder, the other thing James is accused of is that he's accused of kind of the writing things that, that kind of don't go with one another. He seems to kind of change topics pretty quickly, right? And so last week, uh, Pastor David unpacked uh, verses 13 uh, to 16, talking about the prayer of faith and what it looks like to pray in faith. And then his kind of parting shots is, is he's talking about if any one of you wanders. And I kind of wonder if he's got the rest of his letter in mind as, as we talk about trials, as we talk about how we treat one another, as we talk about the words that we say, as we talk about how to live in light of the eventual return of Christ. If James is talking about this wandering, is it if you depart especially in those areas that we've already talked about in the entirety of this letter, that if you begin to stray from those areas, if you begin to go through trials and you don't have your eyes focused on Christ, if you begin to disparage one another not remembering what Christ has done for you, if you don't live in such a way that you anticipate Christ's return, if James might consider that to be the wandering. And I don't know that because James doesn't make that explicit. But as we think about what it is that he's trying to say, he says, my brothers. And when he says my brothers, that, that tells us that he's talking to the church. He's talking about uh, his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says, if anyone among you wanders, and the fact that he says anyone tells me that any one of us, including me, could wander. 
I'm not immune from wandering just because I get to stand up here and, and preach to you once in a while. You're not immune from wandering because maybe you've been in the church for 30 years or 50 years or your whole life. You're not immune from it. James says, if anyone among you wanders, that that should scare us maybe a little bit or at least put a healthy fear in us that, that I could go down a wrong path. And so what James might be saying here is like, pay attention. Pay attention, Christian. Pay attention, you who read your Bible every day. Pay attention, you who don't read your Bible every day. Pay attention, you who shows up to all the things during the middle of the week. Pay attention, you who are sporadic even in your Sunday attendance. Anyone, everyone, pay attention because you could be prone to wander. What is it that he means when he, when he talks about wandering? What, what is it to wander? What, what do you think of when, when you hear that word, if any one of you wanders? Do, do you think of um, maybe somebody who's in what we, what we might call a backslidden condition? Right? Maybe somebody who um, makes a mistake here and there, has a particular sin in their life that they can't just, just can't seem to get a handle on. I, I think what James has in mind here is maybe more than just the backslidden Christian. I think what James has in view here as he's talking about the apostate, the one who has decided this Jesus thing isn't for me anymore. But yet he's talking to anyone. He's talking to any and all of us and saying, Pay attention to those who wander. Pay attention to the one who used to be among your midst and is now saying this Jesus thing isn't for me anymore. I'm going to go a different way in my life. I read a news article this week. I have my head buried in the news quite a bit throughout the week. and um, I read a news article about this woman who um, basically she was, was engaging in, in adult kind of activity. But the headline that caught my attention, it was on a, a national news outlet where she said something to the effect that my faith has no bearing on the things that I do in my life. She's one that, that grew, grew up in the church. Uh, even today would say that she would be a Christian, yet engages in activity and says that, that this has nothing to do with my faith. I'm free to do whatever I want regardless of my faith. My faith is just about me and, and nothing else. My faith isn't about what I do. My faith isn't about who I hang out with. My faith isn't about the activities in which I engage. And it just was an interesting read, not surprising for 2021, but an interesting read of kind of this compartmentalization. And, and she's one, like I read that article, think like she's wandered from the faith. She's, and she's deceived. Right? She's deceived herself saying that she's still in the faith, but really she's wandered from the faith. And I see things like this on my social media feed all the time. Maybe you do too. People who, who say that they love Christ yet have, have bought into uh, ideologies that are not Christ-like at all. And I have a couple of friends in particular who, as I see their things show up in my social media feed, I fear that they've wandered from the faith. I've even actually articulated that to another friend about our mutual friends asking the question, have, have they wandered from the faith? Are they subscribing to a different gospel, little g, not capital G? Are they subscribing to a different gospel altogether that isn't good news? And I fear that for my friends. I fear that. And James has something to say about that. So, so A, anyone, anyone and everyone has the propensity, has the possibility to wander. And what is it that we wander from? Do we, do we wander from the church? 
Do we wander from just our attendance at things? Yes, but I think James has more in mind here. James says, pay attention for anyone who wanders from the truth. The fact that James calls out the truth says something. It says that there is a standard by which we ought to live that is not subjective. It's not up to you and I to set the standard by which we live. And if it's not up to you and it's not up to me to set the standard by which we live, well, who is it up to? Right? It's up to God. God has set a standard for humanity. God has, has given us uh, boundaries in which to live, not because he's a curmudgeon, but because he knows what's good for us and he is for us. And James is saying that anyone and everyone can wander from the standard that God set. But just like this woman that I mentioned in the article, she, she set her own standard and said, God's standard doesn't apply to me. I've got my own standard, and as long as I'm good with it, that's all that matters. Right? This person has wandered from the truth. My friends that I talk about, I fear that they've wandered from the truth. Right? We're still friends, and we're always going to be friends, but I fear they've wandered not from me, they stopped attending church probably 10 years ago. And during that 10 years, little by little by little, they, they keep wandering farther and farther from what's true. And so there is a standard that is the truth that's set by God. And so James says to all of us that if anybody wanders from that standard, wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. So he says someone, and again, speaking to all of us, he's not saying that if someone wanders from the truth and the pastors bring this person back. He's not saying if someone wanders from the truth and those of you who are super spiritual bring somebody back. But he's saying if, if, if anyone, which could be any of us, wanders from the truth and someone, which also could be any of us, brings that person back, that there's an implication in that statement. And that implication is that, that we have an obligation to one another. Right, a few minutes ago, I, I talked about the life of the church. The life of the church happens in our obligation to one another. Right? Our church has a function, and the function of the church is that we're here every Sunday. The function of the church is that we have you know, things that, that happen throughout the week, and we have a calendar and a schedule that says when those things are going to happen. Right? The function of the church is that, that people give and we deploy those resources um, to keep up the function of the church and to do things in our community. But the life of the church, the life of the church is what James has in view here. Just because we're here every Sunday and just because um, you know, we can pay rent and keep the lights on, that, that doesn't necessarily keep somebody from wandering from the truth. Just because you come every week as faithful as can be Sunday after Sunday, just because you're engaged in the function of the church, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're engaged in the life of the church. And when James is talking about those who wander, he's talking about the life of the church and that there's life happening and that as we see those who wander, that we take it upon ourselves, each and every one of us, to pursue those who wander. Now, I want to be careful here and not, not try to paint a picture that 
the role of the Christian is just to be in everybody's business all of the time and telling everybody what they're doing wrong. That's not the job of the Christian. That's not what James is saying here. James isn't saying that it's my job to show up at your door every week and, and to criticize you for all the wrong things that you've done. That's not what James is getting at. James isn't telling us that we ought to be offended by one another. He's not saying that we should be offended by the things that we do, right? We, we oftentimes can come to one another out of our offense, right? We do that. We're human. But James is telling us there's a standard of truth by which God calls the Christian to live. And when our brothers and our sisters seem to wander from that standard, that it's our duty, our obligation, our role as Christians who are engaged in the function of the church, that we would love one another enough to go to one another and say, brother, you're not living in a way that shows that you're a Christian. And that, that might rub some of you the wrong way, the thought of that, but I'll, I'll just speak for me. I've needed that in my life at times. I've needed somebody to come to me and say, you've got a blind spot in your life. And you don't know it, but I, because I love you, I'm going to point it out to you, this blind spot. And I'll tell you, in the times that those, 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 that's happened, I've been offended, sometimes deeply, initially. But usually, usually God brings me around to realize, you know what? This brother loves me enough to point out an error in my life that I... Sometimes I was unaware of, other times I was aware of, right? We, we sometimes walk blatantly in sin. But I've needed that in my life. And so my brothers, if anyone, which could be any one of us, wanders from the truth, God's perfect standard, and someone, which again could be any of us, brings that person back, what, what does that look like to bring a person back? We got an email this week um, to the pastors about uh, some people who haven't been in fellowship for a while, and they kind of wrote this long email talking about their life circumstances, and at the end, uh, they made a comment that said, you know what, it's, it's going to be hard to come back because we've been gone for a while, and kind of the way that I read that was like maybe there's some shame on their part um, because that they've been gone for a while, like it's hard to walk back in having been absent for a time, wondering what, what are people going to think? Are people going to judge me? Are people going to ask me uncomfortable questions? And I get that. I get that. But James, James is not calling us to shame the sinner here. James is not calling us to shame the person who maybe even has offended us. Right? What it looks like to bring someone back is to welcome them with open arms. In Galatians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so our job, our role as Christians is not to point the finger at the person that maybe sins in ways different than we do. Right? If you sin in the same way that I do, I can be patient with you because, you know, hey, I get it, I've been there. But if you sin in a different way than I do, and especially in a way that I don't think I would sin, then I'm, I'm offended at you and I'm mad at you. <laughs> I can point my finger at you and I can look down at you and say, I would never do what you're doing. This is not what Paul is saying. This is not what James is saying. 
Matter of fact, he's saying that, that if you're spiritual, if you consider yourself to be spiritual at all, that we should restore people with a spirit of gentleness. Not pointing the finger, not, not yelling at them, not in anger, but in gentleness. And then Paul gives us this reminder of why we should be gentle. He's saying, keep watch on yourself because you know what? The roles could be reversed and it could be you. You could be the one that is wandering and you could be the one who's feeling shame for coming back. Remember that as you deal with one another. And then Paul gives us this command to bear one another's burdens. Like it's our job to bear one another's burdens. And we've seen that in the last few weeks, particularly in our sharing time, where some of you have shared some difficult things that are happening in your life. And we, we gladly and with privilege bear one another's burdens in that way. We bear one another's burdens as we pray for each other throughout the week. We bear one another's burdens as we call, as we text and say, how are you doing with this thing? We, we bear one another's burdens when we care for one another. And this, this is the role of the Christian, not a role that we do begrudgingly, but it, it's a privilege to get to do that. It's hard to get to do that, but it's a privilege that we get to do that. I was thinking about another friend of mine yesterday um, who we both have gone through some difficult things during the course of our friendship. And I just, as I was thinking about this passage, I was just reflecting on how we have been able to bear one another's burdens as we've, you know, I've walked through difficulties with him and he's walked through difficulties with me. And we've been able to bear one another's burdens. And and it just really hit me like what a privilege it is, not only to have somebody bear my burdens, not only to have somebody um, on my side and in my corner, but to be that for somebody else. What, What an incredible privilege that is. And I began just reflecting on, you know, this particular friendship, thanking God for it. This is what James is talking about as we consider those who would wander and our role to bring them back. James goes on in verse 20 to says, let him know, in other words, the, the person who brings the wanderer back, let him know or her know, that whoever brings back a sinner, again, this is anybody and everybody. He's not just talking to the pastors, not talking to Bible study leaders, but anybody and everybody. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will score a lot of points in heaven. No, that's not what he's saying. <laughs> whoever brings a wanderer back will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. When we participate in the bringing back of those who wander, it's not because we're trying to rack up points with God. Right? We've said this before. There are no quid pro quo with God. It's not that if we do these things for God, He's going to do certain things for us. God doesn't work that way. God's not keeping a tally up in heaven. No, Chad brought another one back. Let's make a hash mark. No. Whoever brings back a wanderer doesn't score points with God, but saves a sinner from death. So the idea here is that we all get to participate in really a spiritual search and rescue team. Right? We live in an area where mountains, rivers, lakes, pretty common when the weather's nice, that, um, even when it's not nice, but especially when it's nice, we see headlines, search and rescue, had to go up to Smith Rock out in Terrebonne and rescue a hiker that fell or got stuck. 
right? Search and rescue. Um, matter of fact, I think somebody just fell the other day 50 feet in the Columbia River Gorge in three days, and they rescued a guy, right? This is, this is what James is talking about, but in a spiritual sense that we would all engage in and participate in a spiritual search and rescue. Again, not getting up in, in each other's business dictating necessarily how we live, but that when we see somebody wander from this standard of the truth that God has given us, that we would take it upon ourselves to engage in a rescue mission. And so when someone brings back a sinner, when someone brings back someone who is spiritually lost from their wandering, in other words, helps them get back on the path, a very important thing happens, a magnificent thing happens. We participate in helping save the soul of the sinner. Don't let this be lost on you today. This is a big deal that we get to do this. This is a huge deal. And not only do do we get to play a role in God saving the soul of the sinners, remember it's God that does the saving, not us. We should make that clear. Right? But God uses us in that process and it covers a multitude of sins. One pastor uh, who I frequently listen to preached a sermon several years ago, and the title of this sermon was that eternal security is a community project. And what he meant by that is that my salvation, part of the security that I can have in the fact that God has saved me is that, that I know that I have you to come after me when I stray from the path and when I wander. I don't have to go it alone. I don't have to be a lone ranger. I don't have to be strong because when I'm weak, you can be strong for me. And when you're weak, I can be strong for you. Right? This is the way God has designed it to work. And so in this thought of the security of our salvation, at least in part being a community project, right? it's God who saves, it's God who secures, and, and we would teach and preach that when God saves you and secures you, he's, He doesn't let go. Right? That, that's not in danger, but part of how God works is that He brings people into my life that sometimes need to say, brother, you got a blind spot. Brother, you're going in a bad direction. You need to course correct. And as much as in the moment that might rub me the wrong way, I thank God for that in my life, and you should too. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14 Paul says, to put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The Apostle Paul is giving us um, a glimpse here of what the life of the church ought to look like. The life of the church ought to look like one of love, one of patience, one of kindness, one of forgiveness, one of bearing one another's burdens, because that's what God has done for us. God has been patient with me in my sin. The Bible says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not God's wrath that leads us to repentance, but it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So as we consider these two verses about those who wander and those who are lost, there, there are a few implications that I want to make sure that we don't miss today. And the first is that 
The fact that someone can wander from the truth, it implies, we've already talked about this, that there is truth, that there is a standard. You don't have your truth and I don't have my truth. That There is truth. And it doesn't, it's not predicated upon what you and I think about it. Right? There's truth, whether I believe it or not, or whether you subscribe to it or not, there is a truth. Right? We, we don't have separate truths. So this means that because you and I don't set the standard, that the standard is not negotiable. Right? We can't negotiate truth with God. The second implication is that the fact that we would know that somebody wanders, the fact that, that the gathered church might one day say, so-and-so isn't here, where, where have they been? The fact that we would know that somebody wanders implies a faith and a practice that goes far beyond just attending weekly service. There are many people who are faithful Sunday attenders, and that's a good thing, not a bad thing. But, but an implication in this is that church is far more than Sunday attendance. There's an aspect to our fellowship where we're in each other's lives enough that, that I would know when you wander and that you would know when I wander, right? And that we would engage in this spiritual search and rescue. So your Christianity, brothers and sisters, is more than just attending church. And a third implication, the fact that we are tasked with pursuing those who wander implies a corporate nature to our faith as opposed to an individual. And I know that's probably similar to what I just said. But there's this thought out there that, that my faith, like it's just me and Jesus. Your faith is not just you and Jesus. The Bible will not tell you that. There's an individual component to your faith, absolutely, but the totality of your faith is not just you and Jesus. The fact that we would pursue those who wander, that we would know that somebody wanders, tells us that, that our faith is corporate and not individual. This tells us that we desperately need one another. Whether you realize that or not, whether you feel like it or not, we need each other. God in His sovereignty has put us in fellowship together because we need each other. I think of Romans chapter 12 where it actually tells us that we are members of one another, that we belong to one another. We have a level of ownership to one another. I was thinking the other day of a scenario back when I was in high school. I was a wrestler in high school. Wasn't very great at it, but, but I was a wrestler. Crook County High School in Prime, like if you didn't wrestle, you know, they're, they're like it's just what you did, right? You didn't have a choice in it. And, and so I was a wrestler. And there was this guy on the wrestling team. His name was Buddy. And I wasn't a very big guy as a wrestler. Buddy, he was a big guy. I was a freshman. He was a senior. And he was a little bit of a bully. Maybe not like a full-on bully, but like he was kind of proud about how big he was. And there was one day we were in the locker room and, and he comes by and he just shoves me out of the way. And out of complete reflex, I punched him in the gut, like right in the spot that takes your wind away. And it was just a reflex. I didn't do it on purpose because this guy could pound me. But just out of reflex, I punched him in the gut. And then all of a sudden, like my mouth goes into overtime. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Accident, it was a reflex. Please don't kill me. 
right? That kind of a thing. <laughs> and like, like, like I got him right in the spot in the stomach and he just walks away. He's like, don't do that again. And he, and he walked away. And I just like, oh my goodness, like that could have gone a million ways worse than it did. But, but what I thought about is that one member of my body did a stupid thing. And other parts of my body reacted in the moment to cover up for that stupid thing, right? My, my fist wandered, right? And, and my mouth started to, to bring my fist, like to make up for my fist. Like, I'm sorry, don't kill me, right? Think about that as it pertains to this, right? Paul, over and over again, the New Testament refers to the church as, as a body. And he talks about how ridiculous it is that that your thumb might decide one day I don't want to be a thumb anymore. It's stupid and impossible. It can't happen. And if your thumb were to survive alone, like it wouldn't survive for very, like you cut your thumb off, it, it wouldn't survive very long before it just shrivels up and dies, right? So I think as Paul uses the analogy of a body for the church, he's doing this on purpose to show us how ridiculous it is to think that as a Christian I can survive without the rest of the body. And as he talks about in Romans 12, of us being members of one another, when one part of the body wanders or, or, or does something they ought not to do, the rest of the body ought to react to that. Does that make sense? So, so we don't look at the wanderer and say, I'm offended that they're out there in their wandering. We don't do that. When the fist does a dumb thing, the mouth kicks into gear to make up for it. This is what James and Paul are both talking about. Wrapping this up, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, Paul says that, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived that neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And if you're like me, you're ready to like, yes! But he doesn't stop there. Paul then pulls the rug out from under us and he says, and such were some of you. You may not look at that list and think, okay, done, done this, didn't do that, done that, right? But Paul reminds us, you all, prior to coming to faith in Christ, were like these people in that you were wandering in your sin. But, Paul says, you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. This is our motivation for spiritual search and rescue. Because you know what, that wanderer, that used to be me. And God saw fit to call me into his kingdom and to save me. And God saw fit, in my case, to use a Sunday school teacher to share with me the truth of the gospel in a way that I responded to it. God saw fit to do that. And you all who are sitting here today with faith in Christ, you have a story about somehow somebody engaged in, in your spiritual search and rescue. Somehow, some way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul tells us that those who have been reconciled to God now have upon them incumbent the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, those who have been saved, those who have been washed and sanctified, as Paul talks about, 
now have a duty on them to go out and help others experience the same thing. This is, this is the Christian life on earth. This is, this is why you exist. This is why you have the job that you have, why you live in the neighborhood that you live in. This is why you have the family that you have. You don't have to hop on a plane and go somewhere else if you want to, fine. That's great. But you've got a built-in mission field in the life that God has given you to rescue those who need so desperately to be rescued. And 2 Corinthians 5 also tells us, like, this is God's plan. This is not just a good idea. This is not one plan of many. This is not plan A, and there's a plan B. Some, like, this is the plan. This is the plan of displaying and declaring the gospel throughout the world, is that you and I, who have been rescued, would be the ones to go out and engage in rescue. And so this bringing back a wanderer thing, like, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. And especially as we put it in the context of James's letter, that this applies not only to those in the church who would wander, this, this applies to those who have yet to be a part of the church and who don't even know that they're wandering. And so I'd encourage you this morning to think about the role that you might have with the circle that you have built into your life, friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, whatever. The circle that you have built into your life with those whom you fellowship with week after week. And, and the privilege that you have, not, not duty in the sense that, that it's this overbearing thing that we don't want to do, but the privilege that you have because of what God has done for you that you get to do for others in a similar way. And as we consider the entirety of the book of James and, and what it looks like that our faith would, uh, or the things that we do, the way that we live would be an outworking of the things that we believe, this makes sense. If things like this don't work it out in the way that we live, we, we might want to question the things that we say that we believe, right? If I believe that God has done for me things that I could never do for myself, yet nothing about my life shows that I'm willing to engage in spiritual search and rescue, but what does that say about what I believe or what I think I believe, right? And so when, when this happens it becomes a beautiful thing within the church. It becomes an absolutely beautiful thing. And so I want to pray for us, and myself included, that, that we would be helped by God in this because my natural inclination is not to do this. My natural inclination is when I see somebody wander, you know, whatever. Probably your natural, if, if it's not your natural inclination, you're a better person than I am. And so we need God's help to do this because we, we don't do this necessarily on our own, especially in the culture that we live in that, that promotes individualism more and more and more every day. This is where the church can stand out in culture because we're not individualistic, right? We're not communal like in a cultish sort of a way, but, but there's a corporate nature to our faith that we can't ignore in the Bible. Matter of fact, Jesus says that one of the ways that the world will know who the followers of Christ are is what? How much they study their Bibles? How often they attend church? How much they know? How many good deeds they do in the world? No. The way that the world will know who the church is is by the way the church loves people inside the church. And one of those ways that we love is by gently pursuing those who wander and doing so with kindness and meekness and humility. 
and with a goal of restoration, not with a goal of, of shaming or humility, you know, hum- humiliating somebody. So consider that uh, as we pray this morning that God will help that be a characteristic of our church. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful this morning. Um, thankful that you love us enough to come after us in our sinful state. Your word tells us that nobody pursues you. And the only reason that we're able to say that we know God is because you came after us when we were running hard and fast the other way. And so God, help us to be a church that is characterized by people who pursue those who wander and do so with love and with, uh, with a goal of restoration. Help us to be a church that's known for pointing people to Christ. Help us to be individual Christians uh, in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces and in our families that are known uh, for pointing people to Christ and displaying and declaring the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the things that we say and the things that we do. And so, Father, help us to bring back those who wander. We can't do this on our own. We don't want to do this on our own. And so we need your help, and we ask for it this morning in Christ's name. Amen.